Welcome to the HexDevs podcast, where we interview the best developers across the globe so we can help you become a better developer. I'm Thiago. And I'm Stephanie. Hey, everyone. We are so excited to be back to the HexDevs podcast. And this year, we will try something different with the episodes. We will have a more general episode where we ask more technical questions to our guests. And then we have another episode asking more about the immigration part. So this first episode, we have Fabiano Bezelga. Thanks for joining us today, Fabiano. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the invite, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. And so for this first part, we will talk more about general questions, more technical um, questions as well. And the first question is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What are your interests, your background? Sure, sure. So yeah, my name is Fabiano Bezelga. Uh, my interests are mostly related to software development, I would say, <laughs> startups, and also I enjoy playing some card games. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that summarizes a little bit of me. <laughs> what card games do you play? Uh, okay, so I started playing Magic the Gathering. And recently I play like Hearthstone or Gwent and yeah, I like it a lot. So Fabiano, uh, you've been the co-founder of a very large fintech in Brazil and you were also a CTO. What kind of, what kind of challenges you had to face for being a co-founder, a technical co-founder? I stayed in this company I co-founded and I stayed for seven years. So the challenges changed among the years. Uh, I would say in the beginning, the problem, the challenge was more to find the product market fit. So as all startups in the beginning, the main challenge is to survive. <laughs> and then uh, we needed to pivot the product once and yeah so I'd say it was more on the business side in the beginning and next up the technical challenge of course uh, to like learn everything related to investments accounting and that kind of things uh, integrations with partners so actually I had no previous experience in the investments uh, domain. So this was a little bit challenging as well. And uh, compared to other places that I worked, uh, I can say that I had the privilege to have like a CEO, co-founder that also understands how to code. So this mm -hmm. made it much easier to talk about technical things and yeah in previous in other companies need i struggled a little bit a little bit to uh, give the reasons why we need to do some stuff mm -hmm. and, and this ceo like helped a lot on this regard 
and late uh, more late stages uh, the challenges became more about scaling the team uh, structuring the teams and yeah everything aligned with the business timing and also how to uh, not define the co yeah define the culture and kind of shape the culture i would say in the way that makes sense for the company to succeed mm -hmm. yeah th these are the things that come to my mind mm. so you mentioned that you had to find product market fit and kind of understand the market a little bit and see if the idea you guys were working on would make sense uh, so how did you do that and when did you figure out that you had a market for your idea Luciano that is is the CEO co-founder uh, was actually like his idea he has like the expertise on this investments field and we tried one product first and I think was after like a year and a half I don't remember exactly but we find out that our our users needed something a little bit different so it was actually uh, getting feedback from the users uh, we could we were able to to pivot the product to a more uh, successful way I would say coming back a little bit about creating the culture that you said what was that something that was always in your mind since the beginning or was that something that after let's say a few months you you started thinking about it yeah that's that's a good point if I could go back in time I would uh, think about it from the beginning because I think it helps a lot but uh, actually it took a few years to think about this like uh, deeply enough and but the culture was there anyway right because uh, just need to officialize and make it more clear to the whole team and after we did this made it much easier so we could give feedback more clearly to everyone but yeah, it took I think three or four years until we write it down uh, and talk to everyone about it. So it was like a, something I could have done uh, before if I could go back in time. Just a little disclaimer. I actually had the chance to work with Fabiano for a few months before moving to Canada. So if it helps, I can say that the culture was like really, really good. And I wish all startups would be like Magnetis. So I think that it, you did a really great job. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, so talking more a little bit about starting a new team. So you had to create a whole engineering team from scratch. So how, how was the, the process for you? What were the main challenges? And I don't know, maybe something that you're really proud of? 
Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so it was like my my first time uh, building a team like this. Previously, I had like experience in managing uh, a smaller group of people, but never was never like I created, I built the team. So this was the first time, and. Um, how was the process? There was there was a book that helped helped me a lot uh, on the hiring and team building. It's called Smart and Get Things Done by Joe Sposky, I think. And this guy is the creator of Trello. So yeah, he goes through the process of uh, how do you make good hiring. So basically smart, uh, of course, means person can adapt to different situations and that kind of things and has the knowledge uh, between that uh, regards what's needed for the job. And the get things done is about um, getting things done, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> he he says that some people might have one and not the other. Uh, for example, he says that people from the universities, like uh, teachers in university, have a lot of knowledge, but they are not uh, used to ship things, to work with uh, a team of developers, for instance. So uh, only knowledge is not enough and he says that there are other type of uh, uh, professor, uh, professionals that can get things that, done but don't have like the all the knowledge behind needed or they're not willing to, to learn so this can slow down the team. So he uh, brings attention to these two points and also talk about uh, team building and how to make the interview process. Um, I didn't follow everything on this book, but it was like a very good starting point to start to think about this subject. Um, what else? Also, uh, diversity, of course. Uh, I think it's uh, a major factor while building things. So yeah, making like, uh, team, I think it makes the team better to have different point of views and you end up with a better output for for the users. Uh, what else? The culture I just mentioned, I think it's key for making it work. And also I, I encourage, I think, a lot of people in the team to give talks, write posts, blog posts, and uh, making open source stuff. So I would say this is one thing that uh, that I'm proud, as you asked. Yeah, that that is true. I think I actually met you at the Rails Girls workshop, right, in São Paulo. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are we are the company was sponsoring the the meetup, and then I met Stephanie and. Then we hired her, but then she escaped to Canada. Yeah, that that was the the sad thing that I had to give up. 
Right. Um, do you know if the book was inspired on David Allen's book, Getting Things Done? I'm not sure. I don't think so. It's yeah. The the title is a little bit similar, but yeah, very similar actually. But no, <laughs> I don't think. So. Yeah, Joe has a very famous blog too. It's called Joe on Software. And uh, so for your, I guess for your first first few hires, I guess like the culture is more is something more like oh, so I as the CTO, I enjoy these things. Like I like Ruby. I think testing is important, so you probably try to find someone that has the same interests maybe and kind of the same experience. So how do how did you approach your first hires and how was the culture like at the start? Because I guess like you just do the things you kind of enjoy and that you believe in and then you try to find people that share the same values as you. Because probably it's just you and your co-founder. So, so how was that like at at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yes, I think you summarized it pretty well. Um, so, actually, Luciano was looking for someone that had knowledge in Ruby. So he already knew like this community and the way. Uh, in the mindset behind everything like Agile and testing, uh, uh, delivery speed, that are the things that Reyes talks about, right? So, yeah, the first hires were people that matches this, matched this, this mindset. Yeah, I think you summarized it pretty well. <laughs> did, did you work with Ruby already? You mean bef before before Magnetis? Yeah. Yes, yes. Actually, I did my university. What is the name of the thing that you do in the end? The final. <laughs> the final project. Yeah, I don't know the name in English, but I think, uh, you know what I'm talking about. So I was actually I was doing using another technology. I was writing about the Adobe Flex was something re related to Flash, but it was a framework on top of Flash. I think it's called uh, Flex. It was like a framework to build Flash apps. Uh, uh, but we, it was me and another another colleague, but it was actually a little bit boring because we only find like found the official documentation and we could not find so many resources about it. And I remember one day at university, I was having like a Java class and need to start a new project. Uh, and I think I was using, uh, what is the name? NetBeans is like a, a ID for Java. And while you're creating a new project, there were like so many options. And one of them was Ruby and Ruby on Rails. And I found the, the icon, like, beautiful. <laughs> and I started to, to uh, research about it. Ruby and Rails. And it was, uh, was kind of a long time ago. I think 2007. I don't know. I don't remember. 
but then I started to research a lot about it and I got very engaged about the subject and the mindset behind Ruby and Rails, like developer-friendly, uh, deliver pro projects as fast as possible with quality. And then I, I changed the topic of the project, of the final project of the universe to be about Rails. And I, after that, I worked in like two or three companies using Ruby and followed the community uh, kind of since the beginning in Brazil, not the very beginning, but I was like in all the RubyConf Brazil, RubyConf Brazil, and yeah. It's really interesting that your co-founder, the CEO, asked for the technology to be Ruby. <laughs> um, do, do you think it would be, um, things would be really different if you didn't have a co-founder that had some technical knowledge and that underst understood some stuff that you um, recommended? So yeah, do you think it, it would have been really different or? or harder if he didn't have this approach? Yeah, I think actually it's quite a privilege to, to have this because I don't think actually the other CEOs I worked with didn't have so much knowledge about it. So made things go faster for sure. And uh, also I really appreciated all his input on on some stuff is not like his expertise but he had like a good mindset on coding as well so in the beginning he was actually a little bit closer to the coding itself but at some point i said to him to focus on business <laughs> and it was close to the time that we needed to pivot so yeah i think it made it much much easier so I would not, I didn't need to explain a lot of things in details or argue so much because he understood very fast what is it, what I was talking about. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm more, I'm curious right now. Was Magnetis one of the first um, robot advisor platforms in Brazil at the time? Yes. Actually, mm. I would say what was the first one. Mm, nice. Yeah, we, we were also users of Magnetis. And if we compare it to the robot advisors here, the user experience is so much better. Yeah, it's really bad. I'm like, oh, I miss Magnetis. <laughs> yeah. What are the pro? Uh, can you tell the name of the products you have there? Because I have the same problem here in Germany. Uh, so we use Wealth Bar. They're actually a Vancouver company, I guess. Yeah, yeah. they are Vancouver based. Um, and to me, to us, it was a shock when we created the account, and I was like, "Oh, but," and it didn't seem really user friendly. Um, and to add to that, we were also not one hundred percent knowledgeable in Canadian investments. So I, I think that may have played a part as well. Yeah, there's also Wealth Simple, but we never used it. Yeah, yeah. there is Wealth Simple. Um, 
Yeah, maybe some others. But I, I also think it's something that is becoming more popular. It's that, like I ask, I ask people around and they don't know what, um, they don't know anything about those things. But um, I do know that uh, Wealthbar CTO is someone that is really engaged in the community as well. Like I, I heard uh, a developer here in Vancouver saying good stuff about the culture as well. So I think that in that sense is similar to Magnetis. <laughs> yeah, nice. That's cool. Yeah. And also uh, Magnetis was a full remote company at least for the developer team you guys were working f remotely uh was was that from the beginning did you guys started working remotely from the start or not uh, so actually no in the beginning we had this how can i say hybrid uh mode because we had like a possibility to go to the office if you want or work remotely uh, that was very normal as well but in the early early beginnings like me and Luciano we didn't have uh, an office so the company started remotely I would say and this helped to create your, create the other workflow to be remote friendly and while creating the the engineering team while hiring the engineering team uh, at some point we hired uh, two developers from the northeast of brazil after make uh, being part of a conference there tropical ruby and we met some developers and we wanted to to have this uh developers with us and then we acted more proactively because they were like full remotes not they're going to the office right and there were some challenges on that but i i think we succeeded in this field but it was not not like uh, all the team remote all the engineering team remote was like half half when i left we had like about 30 developers in the team so yeah it was like that to me one of well the the most valuable thing that you get from hiring remotely is getting talent across the country across the world right but then i guess that you also have some disadvantages like or not i don't know what is your input in that yeah for sure i think the main advantage is that for sure and also brings more diversity to the team like uh, geographically nationality uh, diversity and i would say yeah the, the advantages hmm. i think the thing that i felt most is when we were to about to celebrate some achievement like uh, achieving a goal something like that and then the team is not there together this this was like the worst part for me at least because uh, yeah this team feeling 
everybody together there to celebrate these moments, I think would be very important. We try to work around it, like sending pizza to all the remote developers at the same time, this kind of things, but it's not the same thing, right? Yeah, I would say that's the worst. There are, there are things like uh, communication, but I don't see that as a bad thing because it shapes the, uh, the workflow and the culture for better, I would say. Because if you're remote, you need to have good communication, you need to have good documentation, you need to have good processes. So I think this uh, enforces companies to have better processes. That's That's my opinion. Yeah. That's true. And if you have everyone in the office, that doesn't mean you also have a good communication, right? So Exactly. Yeah, so that that's really interesting. So you said that by being a remote company, uh this environment kind of forced you to do the right thing, right? So you have to write documentation, you need to be good at communication. You need to be good at writing stuff. So you need to be a good writer. And that also helps with writing code, I guess. And so that that's interesting. So if you're a remote company, you are forced to do the things properly, right? So that's an, an inter interesting advantage. And how did you manage to create this remote uh, atmosphere? Like, what are the things that are really important if you're trying to start a remote culture a development if you if you want to start a remote development environment what are the main things that you should worry about actually this is one of the most asked questions because we had some success creating this remote team and when other um, CTOs or managers from other companies uh, knew about that they want to talk with me on how to make it work so uh... hmm. I guess I guess you can be a remote CTO coach then <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. you should add that to your resume okay. <laughs> uh, but I think uh, there is like a misunderstanding almost companies while talking to this this companies and people the questions were like how do i know if the employee is working how which software do we start to take print screen print screens of the computer so i think this is the wrong way of doing it and yeah, yeah i gotta say yeah that's not the way you want to do this um so I think it comes back to the having a good hiring process, a great hiring process to really hire people you trust and measure the outcome of the teams. If something is not wrong, wrong uh, is going wrong, it will appear some way. Uh, and it's not the fact of being remote that would would hide something, you know, because mm -hmm. I think problems would exist anyway in a local environment so yeah the first thing is understanding that you need to trust and you need to create a friendly environment for being remote and leverage on the good things about that so you can have 
good talent from all over the world and flexibility and that kind of things. Uh, what else can I say? Yeah, as I said, kind of enforces good practices, good practices. Uh, for instance, in the in the team we had like a lot of pre-programming to share knowledge and onboard new developers so i would say this was one of the key uh, things to to make it work also because if you're work, working remotely and there is nobody to talk to you can feel you can feel a little bit lonely so having this pair programming during the day can help you to you can also uh, get to know your your teammates better right and you have someone to talk to during the day yeah um so we will go back to pair programming in a bit because i have a lot of questions for pair programming <laughs> but before moving on um does that work only if you want to build a full team a full remote team or for example let's say that you have just um one or two people that are working remotely and then everyone else works in an office. The, the The reason that I'm asking is because we have, like at the moment, we have one full-time remote person that is like uh, in a time zone really different than ours. And we also have another person that lives in a... Oops, sorry that lives in a nearby, nearby city. But sometimes I wonder if, how is the experience for them, right? Um, so what are your thoughts on having just a few people remote and does do all the things that you said apply to that situation? As well? Yeah, this, this, was, this was one of my main concerns in the beginning after like having full remote developers inside the team because the main concern was having like one develop one well, only one developer that's working remotely and all the team local yeah i think this this is hard when you get to a situation that i don't know you need to change local stuff only to a remote person so a remote person can uh, be part of the team is a little bit artificial and gets a lot of work to get it done right so what we did when we hired we tried to hire like two developers as soon as possible so to not only be just one and also i recommended to to the local team since we had like this hybrid uh way of working meaning that they could work from home as well i recommend them to do more uh remote work in the beginning and if they were in the office to act like they were working remotely. So, yeah, I think it's harder when you have like this, this hybrid situation and the people that need to work locally don't have the option to work mm. uh, remotely as well. I don't know. Yeah, that, that, that actually makes a lot of sense because um if you had someone remote full-time remote on your team 
And let's say you also have some remote days. Let's say you would know how does it feel and then you will know, hey, um, so we need to get better at this and this and this so that our remote process goes smoothly. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The way the way you said was much better, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it brings more more empathy to to you. Yeah, and didn't think about that that way. True. So one thing that I hear a lot from CEOs or CTOs or some other, some people that don't like the idea of remote work especially VC-funded startups, is that this, they say, hey, uh, if I have a remote team, uh, I'm not going to be able to move fast enough because usually you have about 18 months to two years to deliver between rounds. And they say, yeah, so if I have a remote team, I'm not going to be able to move fast enough because they're not going to be here. I'm not going to be able to communicate with them uh, in a fast manner, I, I guess. Uh, I would, wouldn't be able to maybe micromanage them all day or something like that. So so what what do you think about that? Like, do you think, because Magnetis was, uh, it became really large really quickly. So do you think that it makes sense or do you think that it doesn't really apply? What What is your opinion on that? Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, I think I have a strong opinion on that. So... Uh, try to to explain. Mm, there are some cases since we had this hybrid mode. There are some cases that developers when they said, "Oh, tomorrow I will work from home because I need to focus on this. I need to deliver this fast." So. I think this summarizes a little bit because sometimes <laughs> you really need to to have focus and speed and have your environment. And I think the offices, like with all these interruptions, are not friendly, sometimes not friendly for developers. And I I really don't agree on the on the speed thing because I think if you do it well you can leverage speed actually. But I think it depends if the the managers like agree or trust with this, trust in this uh, this kind of environment. Otherwise, I think would fail anyway. So yeah, these these are my opinions on that. Mm -hmm. And you said that a a few others. CTOs went asking you for tips and advice on building remote teams. Do you know if any, if any one of them were able to to do that, or or if at least they tried? Yes, yes. Uh, I didn't follow up with all of them, but there is one that uh, we should talk. I went to Brazil recently and we met, talked a little bit about it and he has um, been like a successful, overall successful remote team and it is kind of a hybrid environment as well, so kind of similar to Magnets. 
so yeah, I, I would say it's possible. Mm. Uh, do 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 you know the name of the company? Yes, it's called uh, Peer, and it's related to mobile insurance, and mm. it is based in São Paulo. Mm, cool. Yeah, it's good. It's good to know more about um, those companies um, growing up and yeah, doing this kind of work. <laughs> Yeah, what you've said about interruptions in the office, I feel that every day. So I really agree with that. Like sometimes I need to get stuff done. I need to focus. And the best way to do that is just to work from home or work from a coffee shop because then no one can really interrupt me unless I have notifications on Slack or something. But yeah, so it's... If you really want to focus for a long time, because if you're a developer, you need that. You need to focus for long periods of time. And I think it really helps to work remotely. Like you can really focus when, if you're, if you're, if you have the discipline, you can really focus for a long time and then you can do your best work and then it's going to be faster, right? Because you're doing things properly. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Yes, exactly. The only thing, if you only work remotely, you can get like very, not having, how can I say, social uh, interactions that I think it's very important as well. So that's why I really like this hybrid mode that people can come to the office. And for people that are working like fully remote, we had some efforts to bring the team twice a year. So you can like no people in person so yeah i think some balancing in there it's also uh, needed going back to the pair programming uh, practice um like as you said it was a common practice in magnetis and why was pair programming so important to you and was that something that you had done before or was that also something that you were doing it for the first time as a CTO? Okay, actually, let me think. Before, I think I didn't had like a place that I did a lot of pre-programming, only like um, some sessions from time to time when was needed was not like a part of the culture or anything um so yeah uh, why it's important to me so in the beginning we had like a few developers and we had like a few things to solve and we we felt that if we're startup we need to survive and if we do one thing at a time and do it well we thought we would have more chances to to succeed instead of like that developer does that and i do that and let's try to do these two things we prefer to work together and stuff to to deliver so this was in the early beginning this this always having this mindset to deliver value as soon as possible. And I think pre-programming had a major uh, role in that regard. Uh, while growing the team was like regarding 
sharing knowledge and this factor about um, welcoming and being friendly, sharing knowledge with all the team. So also there is this quality factor that I would say as well, because I think in the end you deliver better, better code, better product. Uh, usually you have like this pilot, the, the person that is piloting, right, the, doing the code, and there is the co-pilot. And the way I used to do that is to change, switch who is in pilot and co-pilot mode from time to time, like from 30 minutes. And the person that is piloting usually is thinking more about the implementation itself, on the details and that kind of thing, things. and. The co-pilot usually use the the hat that's thinking about the bigger picture of the problem that's being solved, which how to solve these problems, have, having a bigger picture of the problem that's being solved, and thinking about architecture and the system. So I really like this. Uh, how can I say? the switching between chairs, I would say. And yeah, I, I really believe it. You can have better output using this kind of um, practice with inside your team. That said, let's say that, for example, um, because in, in that context, you have two people that are in the same in the same level, let's say. So they can both kind of help each other. But let's say that I'm more in a, well, let's say not, I am. <laughs> I am more in a junior position where I don't have yet the knowledge or the skills to focus more on architecture or in a, or, or more on design. Um, so it, in that case, how can you be an effective uh junior developer doing pair programming and also the opposite um, if you are in a more senior position and you are doing pair programming with junior how do you handle that um, knowledge difference and how does pair programming help with that all right that's a very good question and i really like this subject so um uh, yeah so when you have this kind of situation, I still think it's very helpful because uh, from the from the junior perspective, uh, the person can have contact with how can I say best practices and that kind of things. So I think it levers a lot. Uh, can be a little bit overwhelming, of course, but I think it leverages and speeds up the the learning process. And also from the senior point of view, uh, the person can, if the person understands that uh, this beginner's mindset, I don't know if you heard about it, but I think there's I don't know if there is a book or not, but this beginner's mindset. When a person, when someone never, uh, it's a new thing, it's a new topic. 
So you have like openness and eagerness to learn about it and you can have different ways of solving the problem. So this lack of preconception helps. So if you make the team engage in believing this in this culture, in this um, in this way of doing things, from the team perspective, doing per program, I think uh, speeds it, speeds the things up, and helps also the developers that are being part of it. Yeah, and f from a communication perspective, it also goes back to the point where we were discussing communication, right? Uh, you you may be the the most senior person, you must have done it all, but if you can't. Um, do a pair programming session with someone that is either a junior or an intermediate, that for me, it's a big flaw. Because at least for me, the the definition of senior is someone that in, in a way or another helps other developers grow and not, oh, I have more than five or eight years of experience. Like, yeah. Yeah, totally agree with that. And communication, I think it's a key factor. And I think it's a bit, uh, it's very selfish to 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 do to behave like that. So if you can need to think about the team and and leveraging people, and actually also helps the senior person to get better in communication. Because when you know so much some some stuff, you are probably very good to to explain as well in a very uh, good way. So yeah, I think it's good for all the parts from the company, for the junior, for the senior as well. And how do you start that pair programming culture? Do you lead by do you lead by example? Do you tell them, hey, team, you have to start pair programming? How do you do that? How do you approach that? Be because one of my main concerns of trying to implement a pair programming culture is having people that do not want to do it being forced to do it. Yeah, I think it comes back to the hiring. <laughs> you hire for cultural fit. And if you have this programming culture that will be a major factor I remember uh, while hiring for magnetis we had uh, some questions regarding this because there are some developers that prefer to work individually that's fine but depend it depends if it matches the culture of the company right so I think there are different contexts and yeah you cannot force people and would not be productive, I'd say. So, yeah, cultural fit is is the answer, in my point in my point of view. Usually, when I mention pair programming, I always hear someone say, "Oh, here at the company, we don't have two people working at the same time. We don't have two people doing the same thing. We don't have the time to do that." Yeah. So. I'm sure you have heard <laughs> both this um, nonsense <laughs> stuff. So how do you answer that? Because to me, it clearly shows that the person does not know what pair programming is. But 
I'm like, um, I don't think we are the same page, <laughs> but that's not what paper gaming is. But I wish I had a more, I don't know, a, a better answer to that. <laughs> How do you usually answer to those um, questions? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are some studs on this field that kind of proves uh, that you can have the same speed or better speeds while delivering software. Uh, I know a person, a developer at Magnets had some studs on that and talked about it in meetups. So I can refer to that in the in the podcast notes. And, and also, okay, so this reminds me when I was struggling to make I'll make an analogy here to try to to explain. So this reminds me when I was trying to make tests part of my my pro development process, right? So I I was hearing people saying the same thing. Oh, you don't have time to write tests. We need to deliver this. We need to deliver that. And when you make it like part of your process. Is like not uh, negotiable, negotiable anymore, uh, because you need quality, right, to to do stuff. It's like uh, someone that works in a different job; they had the process to make sure that things are working well and behavior the thing the way they want to. So they have processes. So I would say testing is part of my process to to develop. If you do the same thing with pair programming, like it's part of the uh, the culture of the company, uh, and we really believe that uh, makes our in the long run our code better, more reliable. Share uh, we share more knowledge with the team. We ramp up better new developers. So yeah, with that uh, those arguments, I would. Org. But since I was in the in the CTO position, I could decide that, so it made it easier. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but if I had some discussion about this topic, this is the way that I would approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. I, I was able to convince a group of developers in my company to do a mob programming session. So I'm, I'm pretty excited um but do we have any advice because i i'm not like a pair programming uh expert or something i just really wanted to have more a collaborative culture in the company it's really big like i think we have more than 30 developers somehow but sometimes i maybe it's it's your fault, this. <laughs> I, I miss working uh, with more people like during the day and not just doing my my ticket, whatever. Um, so I kind of miss that because I had that experience in Magnetis. So I would try to make it um, something regular. So do you have any advice for me? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, know, I know exactly how I feel because yeah, the company I'm working on, we don't have this culture as well of pre-programming, and 
Yeah, I think it differs from company to company what works uh, in this context. And also trying to shape a little bit in that regard. But uh, if people are not engaging to the subject, it's like uh, to force something. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the way to go, right? Because you need to have people that understand mm -hmm. and believes in, in those things, right? But regarding your experiment, I would say uh, to do the sessions and ask them how it went to see if they understand the, the value of that and also give your opinion. I'm not I'm not sure how to, to approach this. I have the same I have the same issue, so you're in the same boat on that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought about asking like having the final five minutes to kind of review the session and see what went well, what didn't. Okay. I I, I will keep a log and if I have good stuff I'm, I will share with you. Yeah, so in the past, I did some mob programming with the junior team because we had a separate juniors team, which I don't think is a good idea, but anyway. And they were like, oh, we're not learning anything. We're just like doing some boring stuff. I said, hey, let's do some mob programming. And then we worked together on a problem and they were like super excited because you learn stuff, right? It's not that you're going to learn everything, but just the fact that you're collaborating and you try to solve a problem and you learn some testing and you learn some good practices, you get more engaged. So this could be like an exercise, a mob programming or pair programming. Even if your your company doesn't believe in that a lot, maybe you could do, do it as an exer exercise like once a week or something like that just to keep just to make people happy and engaged, you know. And then if you don't need to like force people to to go to the exercise, but the people that want to go and want to participate, I'm pretty sure they're gonna feel happy about it. They're gonna be they're gonna enjoy it. So I think it's it's kind of a team building exercise if you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. This mob programming, I need to confess that I didn't heard about it, but I researched here. It's like you bring the whole team to do the, the same things, like a dojo, right? Is that the thing? Yeah. yeah oh, sounds, sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and do you have yeah, like, no, a, like a, how can I say, what is the, like anyone, there is one person that is coding and then you switch this how how does it work yeah so i i was doing some research and the the way it works is you you set the time for the driver so you have one driver and the driver is the only person allowed to modif modify the code so they are the only ones that can touch the keyboard and the mouse and then the other people are navigators so they are doing this, um, the the thinking process, right? The driver is not thinking. Oh, I mean, of course he's thinking, but he's not worried about design, about architecture. He's only typing what the navigators are saying they should type. And then you switch 
the the drivers after every I don't know five or ten minutes. So I'm going to try for the driver to um, to drive for about ten minutes, I guess, and then we switch, and so that we we can have more people um, changing the rules, right? Yeah, sounds sounds very nice. Uh, how many people usually do this? Like, do you have a limit, or I don't know? You decide like can be a lot of people as well. No, because I was wondering if you have too many people can be a little bit uh, hard to communicate, and mm -hmm. I don't know. Because when you're doing pair programming, you have this connection right with one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but I think this helps a lot for for team building, right? No, no problem. But I, I was just wondering that if you have a lot of people, this kind of uh, happened while I was doing dojo sessions when you have this communication issue because there are too many people trying to mm. talk and different uh, perspectives, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, But you have some everyone liking the same page in kind of a small team, four or five people, I think this can work pretty well. Or you can use this for the team building, as Thiago mentioned. I think it is pretty nice. But yeah, I, I, I'm interested in trying this to see how it goes. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, I actually haven't thought about that, about the, the, the limit of people. Yeah, cool. Once I did a dojo with 30 people, and the, the idea is if you have too many people, only the driver and the co-pilot can discuss things. And if they get stuck, they ask for help. But not everyone shouts at them, hey, do this, do that. No, because then it, it doesn't work, right? So if you have a bunch of people, and it, it really works well for classes. Like if you're trying to teach some something and you do a dojo, only the pilot and the co-pilot can uh, try to solve the problem, and then they switch, and then other person becomes the co-pilot, and etc. But then, only if they get stuck, people can help them from the audience, but not everyone can just help. So you have to wait for your, your turn, right? I see. Yeah, that's, that's very nice. I Actually, you're saying this, I remember that I experienced this. There was this meetup in Brazil called Guru SP, uh, Rube meetup. And we, at one of those meetups, there was this dojo session. It was very nice to see because you have like a pair programming happening, right? Because you have two people that can talk. Only if they get stuck, they ask people. But I saw pair programming between two uh very good developers. It was Vinicius Baggio that went to San Francisco and working in very nice companies like Medium and others that I don't remember. And Nando Vieira, that is a very famous character in the Ruby community as well. So it was very nice live pre-programming that you can see how uh, these developers communicate and yeah, this can help a lot to create a pair programming culture thinking now. Mm, nice. Okay. Do, do you have the, the link to share? 
Uh, I'm not sure if this was recorded, but I, oh. I will check. I have the contact mm. of the, the person. Maybe it's recorded. Yes, cool. I will mm. look at you. Um, all right. So we have been talking about a lot of the good things of programming and its advantages. Do you do you think that there is any disadvantage in programming or if there is a, a scenario where programming does not work? I mean, one of them we already discussed, which is forcing people to do it. But can you think of any other mm, examples? Sure, sure. So I remember in the early stages of Magnets, I used to do a lot of pair programming uh, with Philip, Philip Sampaio. He's also uh, someone known in the community, Ruby and Elixir, has like a library now, uh, open source library that is very used. So maybe someone of the people listen knows him, or a lot of people probably. <laughs> so yeah, we are we used to do a lot of pair programming, and but at some point we decided to to split. And when you had like to think about how to solve the problem, when we didn't know where to start, where there was like a, a lot of uncertainty. And we need to talk when we did pair programming for that. But after the problem got uh, shaped and we knew like, oh, we need to do this, this, and this, and this. And since we did a lot of pair programming, we knew exactly the way each one of us was going to do it. So we decided to split. So yeah, I don't know if that's the case for other developers, but from my experience at some point, uh, we felt that this was better depending on the situation. Uh, another case that I can recall when we are doing some front end on CSS stuff, and then there was like a lot of try, try and error, right? So doing this in pair programming was a little bit, uh, I don't know, two people like, yeah, yeah, two people try and not work and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it depends on the on the context on the problem being solved. I think per programming excels in the situations that I mentioned when yeah, you need to have some uncertainty and it's better to people thinking about it. One one thing that I wanted to ask you is about the mentoring and coaching culture of Magnetis because I know that you were you had a really great uh, mentoring culture you were training juniors you were hiring juniors right and I, wa I wanted to ask you about this like how do you create that culture how do you like more specifically how, what you should be doing on a daily basis I guess in order to have that mentorship culture like how do you make sure that you are giving your junior developers a great experience and how do you make sure they are learning 
So how do you do that? Okay. Uh, that's a hard question. I think, mm, I think first of all, I will repeat a little bit myself, mm. but yeah. Uh, I think it comes back to the to the hiring, like hiring for the cultural fit and have having like uh, seniors that engage uh, in mentoring and speeding up junior developers, right? Because if you only hire seniors, seniors, uh, I see that a lot in companies, uh, not in Brazil, but mostly abroad. That's I see a lot true. of companies that only hire seniors. So where the how how do you become a senior developer in this environment? <laughs> I don't I don't understand that. Like it's seems that everyone was born a senior. So uh, well, you you don't know they grow they grow up on trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah I don't know. But uh, I really uh, believe in this beginner mindset that I just mentioned and also giving like opportunity for people to grow with the team. This can be very healthy for the company and for the junior developer, the senior, and helps to improve communication. So... I think you need to hire people that also believe in that. That's I think that's the main the main answer. Uh, it's not something you enforce. It's something that you communicate, of course, as a manager. But people should engage in that as well. They they need to to believe that that's better for the context of the company for the output of the product. And having this diversity and seniority is is also important uh, for for everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting you mentioning that because I also felt that difference here. I, I when I first got here, I didn't find any almost like zero junior developer developers developer position, and I honestly thought that I would never get a position here. I was like, oh, okay. I should have changed our landing uh, in Canada time in three years, I guess, because I got here too soon. So. so going back to talking a little bit about the challenges of being a CTO, do you, is there anything that you had to master to become a better CTO and to become a better leader, like along the way? And especially when the team became very large. Yeah. Yes, sure. Uh, so yeah, I, I did like a lot of studying in the, in the management field and learning from talking to other CTOs to to learn how to to manage and get better in this position. I can say that there are a lot of different opinions on, on this uh, position, what should be done. I think it really depends on the stage of the company 
and the way uh, the CTO wants to to do that, right? So I would say that I need to get better in communication. I think communication is very is like the key factor in management as a whole, but for this position, let's say it's very important, and to learn to to listen more than than talk, to really understand what people are thinking, and to listen to their inputs and act on that. Uh, so this one thing that I that I try to do a lot at Magnet. So we had like retrospectives, and we listened to the whole team and actually really take into consideration everyone's thoughts uh, and also understanding that every team member is different i think this is one thing that managers uh how can i say underestimate because you can learn how to manage people you can read like a book but then if you try to use the same way for every team member is not going to work so there, there needs to be like a personal connection, and mm. to understand the, to understand what the person thinks and behaves mm -hmm. and what are the purposes behind. So I think that can help a lot, uh, and I think uh, different people uh, expect different ways of management, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, saying that sounds obvious, but I, I don't see that happening in a lot of places. So, uh, what else? Uh, communication, I mentioned it as well, but I think another thing is very important is because you can say a lot of stuff, communicate pretty well, but I think people will care about what you're saying uh, if you care as well. So, you need to believe in what you're saying in, and really engage so people engage as well. It's like uh, they resonate and understand what you're saying because you really believe as well. So yeah, I, I in my experience, I saw some examples of managers that were saying some stuff, but you can see that the person does not believe in that. It's just because it needs to be done, you know? So yeah, that's it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think that the most obvious things are the ones that we miss most. Yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. So when you talk about retros, for example, and you say, oh, so we really, we really listen to people during the retro and we try to understand what they're talking about and really put yourself in their shoes, right? I think it makes, makes, makes sense, like... Because then you can understand what they're struggling with and then you can act and try to make things better so how did so how did you so how did you uh, so how did you how did it work like after the retro do you create like some tickets or some stuff to work on afterwards like how do you make sure that you don't lose anything and that you try to fix the bad things and improve. Yeah, so 
Yeah, retrospective is another thing that I, I really like, and I I think it's a key factor for a team to to have this kind of because if you don't do retrospectives, it means that everything is fine, right? So <laughs> yeah, I think there is always room for improvement, and uh, so there are cases that people bring stuff to the table and we we understood that maybe you're not communicating some some stuff so well so we need to improve the communication for instance or no we really need to to change some stuff and every every input was taken into consideration and we had an action item for that so even if it was a misunderstanding means that we need to improve something in our communication and this was written down with the whole team together uh, we we did like retrospective remotely friendly as well so everybody like in their computers with a shared screen so we wrote the action items down uh, during this during this session and we follow up in the next session to to see what was what was done uh, to to improve that specific point. And uh, something that I really cared about is to make sure that every, everybody is being listened. In order to do that, uh, let's say there is like a, a comment or input from someone that another people another person disagrees. Uh, if that happens often, the person that's bringing the input can get like shy or not confident to bring more input. So I made sure that like to avoid this kind of things happening, you know, to mm -hmm. to ask more what the person is, is talking about, to, to avoid this kind of interruptions and say people saying that they don't care and yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think the the manager, the manager, no, the what's the name? The person that is running the retrospective uh, needs to be aware of that to to really make it work in a good shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now putting together all the less latest stuff that we were discussing, it kind of made me think that that is one of the main important things about having diverse people on your team because then you can see that everyone has different needs and that you have to know when you can um, step in and say something so that no one feels uncomfortable and if you have been working your whole time your whole career with the same type of people having the same mindset, it's really difficult for you to put yourself in in another person's shoes, right? So it's, yeah, it, it all comes together to me like that. It's That's why you need to have more diverse people from different backgrounds. And that that's actually a really good thing for the team. And I honestly think that it's also good for the user at the end. Because you, you can have like a, a new feature being discussed, but no one has the experience of uh, being in the user 
place and you you might miss a really important thing right because you don't have anything that thinks you don't have anyone that thinks differently in the team yes exactly totally agree. how do you make sure that you're building the features that your users need right this is hard too oh yes that's hard um <laughs> uh, hmm yeah this this like product management and uh how can you make sure yeah i think you the process that we created is to have like some hypothesis we're going to build this feature and uh we expect this to happen right but we don't know <laughs> if it's going to happen or not so yeah we create hypothesis and bring data to try to create like bases and arguments that that makes sense then you bring it up to the team to see if they engage on that and if the team engages uh it's developed and i think the celebration of uh of the feature should be when the hypothesis is uh, achieved and not when it's deployed to production because i think that kind of ends the cycle so i would celebrate uh, something only when it really worked out so yeah you need to have like a fast uh fast way to to prove a hypothesis either if they failed or not it's actually a good thing that hypothesis failed because you have ways to measure it and you know that it failed so you need to try another way of doing it or another feature but yeah this celebration thing out say is important what your team celebrating tells a lot about uh, the way the way the the team is working so basically hypothesis test fast and see uh if you worked out or not um so i i think that we asked all of i mean we asked a bunch of questions thank you so much for sharing all of that i to me it was a really good conversation um and to wrap up i think that i want to ask you do you plan to become a cto again all right yeah that's uh That's a question I make myself from time to time just to to give context to to the listeners so I I left Magnets after 7 years and then I want to come back to be a full-time developer uh there are a lot of reasons behind it uh not sure if I should go through all of them now but answering your question uh yeah since i experienced like how it is and i think you can see that i have some engagement talking about these topics and i cannot like only do the coding and not uh trying to improve other things like processes culture management and that kind of thing so this is what's happening to me right now uh the idea of only being a developer my position is senior developer but i cannot hold myself to do other stuff and this 
this was one thing that when I said I was leaving, other CTOs, like friends of mine, told me this would happen. They said, no, I'll just code <laughs> and that's it. But yeah, they, they were right. And yeah, for now, for now I, I'm trying to embrace as much as possible this new experiencing, experience moving and like living abroad and having uh, different people from different countries working with me. So this is very valuable. And of course, giving some input. I think like a lot of input on the manager side. And yeah, the CEO likes and asks for more input. So I think it's, it's good to have this openness. And the, the company that I'm working now doesn't have a CTO. We try to have like this um, horizontal horizontal thing. So I would say that I act sometimes like CTO and sometimes as a full developer. So I, I really like this, uh, this, this thing, but sometimes uh, I miss, I miss being, I, I confess that I miss uh, having this role because I can have more more influence. Uh, so yeah, answering your question, I don't know, but if I would become a CTO again, I would like to start something from scratch again because I really like the this beginning of startup and to build stuff from scratch and create this engineering team. I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not engaged so much in having like a mid-size big size company because the the challenges are very different and yeah so maybe and I'd give preference for uh, starting something but for now I as I said I, I'm enjoying a lot coding and having like this site um how can i say role on management and process of the company and the other developers also like that i do this so yeah so far that's it but i I cannot live like without coding so yeah i need to do that to survive and what about starting uh founding a new bit (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's one thing that i that i consider in the future uh, yeah, that's something that I, I like. I have some ideas, not nothing concrete. Uh, currently, I'm studying like new technologies, uh, like new technologies for me, and so Rust and Flutter for mobile development, <laughs> and also having some ideas on on new stuff because. Yeah, maybe in the future. So last question, um, if you had a time machine and you could talk to, go back to the time when, when you were starting out as the co-founder and CTO, what advice would you give you? Yeah, the, the first one would be to, to establish, like write down the, the culture from the beginning. Of course, you can change stuff along the way, but having something written down, I think it helps a lot. That would be the first one. Uh, hmm. 
Yeah, that's the thing that comes to my mind now. Let's let's say. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, that's great adv- advice. I mean, there there are probably people that never even thought about it, and they're still being, <laughs> they're still in a management position. So, <laughs> um, all right. So that was a really cool conversation. We could talk about a bunch of other interesting stuff for I don't know several hours, but thank you so much, Fabiano. I I'm really happy that you we talked about a bunch of a bunch of interesting things and i hope we can have you in future episodes all right so yeah thank you very much i'm very grateful for for the invite it was very nice conversation with both of you so yeah it's nice to talk about these topics Yeah, it was a really insightful conversation. I learned a bunch of stuff. Like, I have so many questions. So you need to come back. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.